welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. As always, thank you for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Paris Commune, we watched as Paris surrendered to the newly formed German Empire after enduring a siege that lasted four months. The average denizens of the city, despite suffering greatly during the siege, felt betrayed by the government's decision to surrender. Many felt that the war should have been seen to a victorious conclusion. This feeling of betrayal was compounded when, as per the terms of the armistice, the victorious German army paraded through the city. However, the sentiment of the ultra-nationalistic, radicalized workers and militiamen of Paris was not shared by the rest of the country. Most wanted the war to end, and saw the monarchists as being the only ones capable of ending it. Thus, when elections were held in February 1871 to form a new French government, monarchists, specifically those of the legitimist and Orleanist variety, won big. The new head of state was Adolphe Thiers, a seasoned statesman who had previously served as prime minister under the July monarchy. Seeking to restore order in the country, Thiers attempted to disarm the National Guard. This would be what led to tensions boiling over. On March 18th, soldiers loyal to the central government attempted to requisition cannons under the control of the National Guard. A clash ensued in which two loyalist generals were killed by an angry mob. With conflict between Versailles, where the new central government was headquartered, and Paris, now inevitable, the National Guard seized control of the city. Elections were soon held for a new Parisian government, one independent from the one in Versailles. The Paris Commune was declared. The more radical members of the Commune wished to march immediately on Versailles and depose the National Government, but their calls were left unheeded. The majority believed that Thiers and the central government could be negotiated with, that some sort of power-sharing arrangement could be worked out. The nine committees of the Commune instead preoccupied themselves with administrative matters, among other things, establishing state secularism, the abolition of the draft, and the death penalty, and mandating that workers be allowed to control and operate their own workplaces. The belief that the central government might leave Paris alone to be an autonomous city within the new French Republic proved to be naive. Thiers flat out refused to negotiate, and began to build up his forces for an attack on Paris. Throughout March and April, a series of small-scale battles took place as the army of Versailles slowly encroached on the city. One such battle took place in the suburb of Neuilly, which the army of Versailles bombed to smithereens with their cannons. After days of fighting, Thiers proposed a ceasefire on humanitarian grounds. In reality, the ceasefire allowed for the army of Versailles to move its artillery to within range of Fort D.E.C., a strategic point Thiers knew that he would have to seize if he wanted to attack Paris. Fort D.E.C. was hardly a defensible position. It had sustained heavy damage from the Prussian bombardment during the first siege. The heavy cannons of the army of Versailles reduced the fortress's walls to little more than rubble within a matter of minutes. As the enemy infantry closed in, the commander of the fortress, one Edmond Megui, wrote frantically to the commander of the National Guard, Gustave Paul Clouseret, begging him for reinforcements. None came. Less than 20 men stood against a force of thousands. Realizing just how hopeless his position was, Magui gave the order to render the fortress's cannons unusable, and he and his men fled. Unbeknownst to him, his calls for help had not gone completely unheard. Shortly thereafter, Clouseret arrived at the scene at the head of 200 men, only to find the fort completely abandoned. The army of Versailles still had yet to reach it. Clouseret immediately ordered the fort to be reoccupied. Unfortunately for Clouseret, 
Word had already reached the Hotel de Ville that the fort had been abandoned. Clouseret was already widely disliked among the Communard leaders, and his failure to reinforce Fort de Issy in a timely enough manner provided them with the perfect pretext to dismiss him from his position. As Clouseret returned to the Hotel de Ville to report his success, he was met by a contingent of National Guardsmen who promptly arrested him. He was dismissed from his position shortly after. He was succeeded in his position as Minister of War by his second-in-command, Louis Rossel. As previously mentioned, Rossel was one of the only French army officers to throw in their lot with the Commune. He had been present at Metz during the siege and escaped before the final surrender. He went on to serve under Gambetta and his Army of the Loire. A staunch Republican and Nationalist, he was one of the many who were scandalized by the armistice of January 28th. And, when he heard that Paris had risen in insurrection, he made up his mind to join the rebels, despite not having any really coherent idea of who they were and what they were fighting for. On offering his services to the Commune, he is quoted as saying, I shall not tell you that I have studied social reforms, but I have a horror of this society which has just sold France with such cowardice. End quote. From the beginning of his tenure, Rossel was fighting an uphill battle, and he knew it. Despite this, he did all he could to shore up the city's defenses against the onslaught from Versailles. With the debacle at Fort de Issy, Rossel had barricades erected throughout the city as a second line of defense. In addition to this, Rossel sought to organize the National Guard into combat groups, each consisting of five battalions and supported by 40 heavy guns. These combat groups would be highly mobile military units and could respond to incursions throughout the city as they were needed. The simple fact of the matter, however, was that there was not nearly enough men-at-arms for Rossell's plan to work. Sure, one of the Commune's first decrees was to conscript every able-bodied man in the city into the National Guard, which, on paper, gave them a strength of around 190,000. However, rampant absenteeism and a lack of training made their actual number of dependable men-at-arms closer to 30,000. Meanwhile, by this point, the Army of Versailles numbered around 130,000, and that number was constantly increasing. On May 9th, Rossell resigned his post in frustration, having held it for little over a week. He then slipped out of the city under a fake name. As the military situation grew increasingly desperate, the most radical members of the Commune saw the decentralized nature of the Communard government as a liability and began to agitate for the creation of a new, more powerful executive authority. On May 1st, a vote was taken to address this issue. With 34 in favor and 28 opposed, the new Committee of Public Safety was formed. This move was opposed by many of the internationalists and prudonists in the Commune, who rightly feared that the Committee would turn the Commune into a dictatorship. The new Committee of Public Safety was modeled on the original body, which the Jacobins had formed during the Revolution of 1792 and utilized to carry out the Reign of Terror. The new Committee of Public Safety consisted of five men, Charles Ranvier, Armand Arnault, Léo Millet, Charles Gerardin, and Félix Piat, all of whom were neo-Jacobins. The committee's enforcer was a 25-year-old intellectual named Raoul Rigaud. As the chief of police, Rigaud was ordered to arrest anyone suspected of treason against the Commune. Rigaud was a militant atheist, and directed his newly expanded powers against the clergy. Never mind that one of the first actions of the commune was to dissolve the church. The clergy, having been rendered inert, hardly posed a threat to the new regime. Nevertheless, Rigaud targeted them for persecution. 
The man who took Rossell's place in this game of musical chairs that was the War Ministry was one Louis-Charles Delacluse, who received a brief mention for his involvement in the attempted insurrection of October 31, 1870. The 61-year-old Delacluse had been a fixture in revolutionary politics since the July Revolution of 1830, and had commanded respect from all factions of the Commune. Delacluse was a civilian, a journalist by trade, and as such, he had no military experience to speak of. However, his neo-Jacobin ideology gelled well with the new regime. On the 9th of May, Felix Piat had been purged from the new Committee of Public Safety. Elections held that same day to replace him saw Delis Clues win. In a mere matter of days, Delis Clues, who initially was reluctant to seek a position in the new government due to his advanced age, had now become one of, if not the most powerful man in the commune. Meanwhile, the new Committee of Public Safety continued to carry out its own reign of terror. The arrests of ranking clergymen continued, including the Archbishop of Paris, Georges Darbois. The Committee of Public Safety, at the urging of the famous artist Gustave Courbet, saw to the destruction of symbols of the old order. Among these was the House of Adolf Thiers and the Vendôme Column, a monument erected by Napoleon I in 1810 as a testament to his victories. Courbet had been insisting on the destruction of the column since September 1870, on both symbolic and aesthetic grounds, and he was elated to see the loathed monument finally destroyed. On April 12th, following one failed attempt, a group of National Guardsmen and quarry workers finally brought the column down. The chunks of metal were then hauled off and melted into coins. The Committee of Public Safety's energy was directed at all the wrong targets, however. While the communards were weighing the fate of their hostages and toppling statues, Thiers' spies were infiltrating the city. Their initial efforts were unsuccessful. The Polish immigrant general Jaroslav Dombrowski declined a bribe of 500,000 francs to allow the army of Versailles entry into the city. When Dombrowski returned to his camp, the bribe giver attempted to assassinate the general, but he was quickly bayoneted to death by his bodyguards. Finally, on the 21st of May, there was a breakthrough. A turncoat in the ranks of the National Guard relayed word to the Versailles general, Felix Douay, that the Pont du Jour, a gate at the southwestern corner of the city had been left more or less unguarded. After a brief reconnaissance mission to verify this report, the order was given, and the Versailles troops began streaming into the city. They beat back Dombrowski's forces with ease, and were able to quickly occupy most of the 16th arrondissement, a district on the far western edge of the city, on the left bank of the Seine. Dombrowski sent an urgent dispatch to the Hôtel de Ville to inform them of this development and to ask for reinforcements. It did not reach them until relatively late in the evening, while General Clouseret was standing trial for his dereliction of duty. Oddly enough, this monumentous news did not spur the committee into action. The trial of Clouseret was conducted in full, he was eventually acquitted, before the communards split off into separate groups for discussion. Lisa Geray writes, quote, Their time was wasted in small talk. There was neither motion nor debate. There was no one to insist at the critical moment of uncertainty, when perhaps it might be necessary to devise a plan of defense at a moment's notice or take a great resolution in the face of disaster, the post of the Guardian of Paris. The Council of the Commune disappeared from history at the same moment of supreme danger as the Versailles penetrated into the city. End quote. When the news reached the War Ministry, it was met with skepticism by Delis Clues. He dispatched Adolphe S.C., a captain of the National Guard, to investigate General Dombrowski's claims. A sea reached the hill of Trocadero, just across the left bank of the Seine later that night, 
There, he saw a group of sleeping National Guardsmen. As he walked towards them to arouse them to action, he slipped in a pool of blood. He soon realized that the National Guardsmen were not sleeping. They were dead. He was soon after ambushed by a group of Versailles soldiers and arrested. Dombrovsky's report was all too true. The enemy had made it through the gates. The urgency of the situation did not set in until the following morning. A sort of silent panic gripped the streets of the city, as Parisians anticipated the violence that was to come. The Hôtel de Ville was a chaotic scene, as the Central Committee of the National Guard, the Artillery Committee, the War Ministry, and the Committee of Public Safety all issued contradictory orders, struggling in vain to organize the final defense. Delis Clues issued a decree meant to arouse the people to action. Quote, Enough of militarism. No more general staffs with badges of rank and gold braided every seam. Make way for the people, for the fighters with bare arms. The hour of revolutionary warfare has struck. End quote. In the end, the Communard military rejected an organized defense, which might have been their best hope to hold out against the onslaught from Versailles. Even while staring defeat in the face, the Communards continued to fight amongst themselves. General Dombrovsky was summoned before the new Committee of Public Safety. A rumor had made the rounds that Dombrovsky had indeed accepted the bribe and allowed the enemy to enter the city after all. He adamantly denied this, testifying that his life belonged to the Commune, and begging to be allowed to return to the front lines. Lisa Giray writes, quote, His gesture, his voice, testified to his bitter despair. End quote. Out in the streets, National Guardsmen worked frantically to erect barricades, a tactic that Ausman's renovations of the city had largely rendered ineffective. The army of Versailles continued their steady, methodical advance deeper and deeper into the city. When the odd communard barricade was encountered, the Versailles soldiers were able to maneuver down the side streets and outflank them. All efforts were focused on the defense of the right bank, where the majority of the working-class denizens of Paris lived. Specific efforts were made to fortify the Rue de Rivoli, where the Hôtel de Ville was located, and the neighborhood of Montmartre, the hotbed of working-class radicalism where the revolution of March 18th had broken out in the first place. Unfortunately for the defenders of Montmartre, the cause of the March 18th insurrection, the cannons, were in a complete state of disrepair. No one had bothered to perform maintenance on them in the time since. Under the guidance of Louis Michel, the defenders of Montmartre erected, or partially erected, nearly 500 barricades overnight, but they would not be enough. To attack Montmartre, General McMahon, the head of the Army of Versailles, selected his finest soldiers and split them into three separate forces. On the morning of May 23rd, they attacked simultaneously, under the cover of artillery fire. The defenders of Montmartre were quickly overwhelmed, many surrendered, and the rest retreated. During the retreat, Louise Michel ran into General Dombrovsky, who exclaimed, We have lost. Moments later, he was struck down by enemy gunfire. His last words were reported to have been, quote, Do they still say that I was a traitor? End quote. His heroic death did indeed dispel the rumors of his treason. His body was taken back to the Hotel de Ville, and, following a grand funeral, he was laid in state. By midday, the tricolor flag of the French Republic once again flew over Montmartre. It was at this time that the suppression of the Commune began to take on the distinctly violent character for which it is known. Following the capture of Montmartre, 49 prisoners, among them women and children, were marched down to the location where Generals Clement Thomas and Lecomte were killed, and were subsequently shot without trial. As the Communards retreated further and further, they left a series of fires in their wake. It is hard to say how these fires initially began. 
Sources sympathetic to the Commune blame the Versailles, whereas sources sympathetic to the Republic blame the Communards, and so on. A prominent rumor began to take root, claiming that roving gangs of Communard women, known as Petroluses, were deliberately setting fire to buildings to hinder the enemy advance. Most historians agreed that these alleged Petroluses did not exist, and if they did, they were very few in number. Following the suppression of the Commune, the myth of the Petroluses was utilized by the Commune's detractors to discredit it, but more on that later. There are some isolated instances of the Communards engaging in arson. Jules Bergeret, recently released from prison, ordered the Tuileries Palace, former residence of Napoleon III, to be set on fire. The building was doused in petroleum and turpentine, and explosives were placed in its central dome. When it was ignited, the display lit up the night sky from miles away. The entire building was gutted in less than two hours. The Louvre Palace, which at the time was adjoined to the Tuileries, was spared total destruction thanks to the efforts of the museum's curators. This act of arson was committed, as Alistair Horne puts it, quote, out of vengeful motives rather than tactical necessity, end quote. Attesting to this is the note that Bergeret left to the leaders at the Hotel de Ville, quote, the last vestiges of royalty have just vanished, end quote. The Tuileries Palace was never rebuilt. Fires now raged all throughout the city. The police prefecture, the Palais Royal, the Belle Jandinière department store, and the buildings housing the Ministry of Justice and the Ministry of Finance, as well as countless houses and stores and other buildings succumbed to the inferno. One onlooker, an American clergyman named William Gibson, borrowed a quote from the Book of Revelation to describe this scene, quote, Alas, alas, that great city which was clothed in fine linens and purple and scarlet and decked in gold and precious stones and pearls, and they cried when they saw her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? End quote. The combat continued under the sky, blackened with smoke. The impressive 16-foot-tall barricade, which guarded the main thoroughfare to the Hôtel de Ville, was reduced to splinters by an artillery bombardment from the army of Versailles. The survivors of this attack retreated down the street to the Hôtel de Ville. At this point in time, the headquarters of the commune had largely been abandoned. Its few occupants were several National Guardsmen who lay dead and dying, and Charles de Lescluze, who, according to Lisa Jurey, was dead inside. Deprived of his vital powers, he continued to issue orders and decrees from his desk, mute as a specter. As the army of Versailles approached, Delis Clues had everyone evacuated from the building, and he had it also put to the torch. In the meantime, Raoul Rigaud, the chief of police, set off to the Saint-Pelagie prison to finish the work that he had started. Presenting the guards with a death warrant that he had forged, he demanded the immediate execution of Gustave Chaudet, a soldier who had been arrested for his participation in the massacre of January 22nd. The guards present were skeptical of the document's authenticity and were reluctant to carry out the execution. Rigaud insisted, even offering to lead the firing squad himself. Once Chaudet was dispatched, Rigaud also ordered, and participated in, the execution of three more soldiers. He was intent on exacting revenge for the brazen executions of his comrades. Each of these executions, however, was horrifically botched. Each of the hostages were killed only after having been shot two or three times. Awful as these executions were, this was only the beginning of it. That evening, six more hostages were slated to be executed. All of them were clergymen, and the Archbishop of Paris was among them. The Archbishop and the others were guided into an alleyway behind the prison, where a firing squad awaited them. 
The archbishop, despite being weakened from illness, remained stalwart in the face of death, and granted his blessing to his fellow hostages. As had happened before, it took more than one volley of fire to fell all the hostages. When the archbishop remained standing after the first round of fire, one of the executioners claimed, quote, My God, he must be wearing armor, end quote. Following the execution, the archbishop's body was unceremoniously tossed into a mass grave in the Père Lachaise Cemetery. Surprisingly, Rigaud was not behind this senseless execution. He could not have been, because that afternoon, while en route back to his apartment, he was stopped on the street by a Versailles officer. As he was wearing his National Guard uniform, he was seized by the officer, who put a handgun to his temple and demanded he renounce the commune. Defiant to the end, Rigaud refused and was shot. The principal action of the next day, May 25th, was centered on the 13th arrondissement in the southeast of the city. Despite predictions to the contrary, the commune had not yet lost the entirety of the left bank of the Seine. This was due to the efforts of General Valery Vroblevsky and his men. Vroblevsky defied orders from Delescluze to retreat across the river, and continued to defend the hilltop neighborhood of but a against the army of Versailles. Vroblevsky and his men kept up their defense until well into the afternoon, when attacks from all sides finally forced him to heed the order to retreat. Across the Seine, Delescluze held a meeting with all the surviving officers at the town hall of the 11th arrondissement. There, he offered Vroblevsky command of all remaining communard forces. Vroblevsky inquired as to how many soldiers Delescluze had left. Delescluze replied that he had a few hundred, at most. Vroblevsky declined the offer. He insisted that he continue to fight on as a simple private soldier. With that, he picked up a rifle and went off to the barricades. Later that day, the elderly, broken Delescluze walked slowly towards an abandoned barricade and, with some effort, managed to climb atop it. He was promptly shot down by the enemy soldiers on the other side. With Delescluze's death, the commune lost even the semblance of leadership. Dobrovsky was dead, Rigaud was dead, Louis Michel had been arrested, Vroblevsky had capitulated his command, both Cluseret and Rossel were in hiding, and Felix Piat had dramatically fled the city. A rainstorm mercifully blew into the city on May 26th, putting out the fires before Paris could be completely razed to the ground, and still the communards continued to fight. That morning, a contingent of National Guardsmen arrived at the prison of La Roquette and demanded the warden hand over the remaining hostages there. Fifty in number, the hostages, which included priests, gendarmes, and suspects of espionage, were marched halfway across the city to the Rue Axo. There, they were not even granted a proper execution. The National Guardsmen just fired haphazardly into the group. By the time the smoke had cleared, 51 bodies were counted. One of the National Guardsmen had accidentally been killed in the crossfire. By the morning of May 27th, the forces of the Commune were all but defeated. Communards were surrendering by the thousands. All the Army of Versailles had left to do was eradicate the few last pockets of resistance. Around 200 men, who still possessed the resolve to fight, were concentrated at the Père Lachaise Cemetery. Early that morning, General Vinoy ordered his men to storm the hill upon which the cemetery sat. The communards had used the last of their ammunition, and proceeded to engage in a fierce melee against the Versailles. Ultimately, 150 communards surrendered to Vinoy's men. They were then lined up against the wall in the eastern section of the cemetery, and unceremoniously shot. The last barricade was located on Rempineau Street, in the neighborhood of Belleville. Allegedly, one unidentified man managed to defend it successfully for 15 minutes straight. 
On three separate occasions, the Versailles attempted to raise the tricolor flag against the barricade, and each time he gunned them down and broke the flagpole. Once his last cartridge was spent, he merely turned and walked away, never to be seen again. With the last of the armed resistance now stamped out, General McMahon issued a declaration, which read, quote, The army of France has come to save you. Paris is delivered. At four o'clock, our soldiers captured the last position occupied by the insurgents. Today the struggle is ended. Order, work, and security will be reborn. End quote. In total, the Army of Versailles suffered less than a thousand casualties during the fighting, whereas the Communards lost somewhere around 3,000. But the bulk of the killings was yet to come. At the La Roquette prison, Communards stood in a queue and were told to go to either the right or the left. Those told to go right were merely imprisoned. Those told to go left were shot. 1,900 were killed this way in one day alone. Many were not even afforded this orderly execution. Countless suspected communards were merely gunned down in the street. Neighbors denounced each other as communard sympathizers. In many cases, wearing low-quality clothing was sufficient evidence to verify a suspect's guilt. The killings, both organized and indiscriminate, carried on for several days. It is difficult to say exactly how many lost their lives during this period. Most historians place the figure of total communards killed around 20,000. The vast majority of these were executed, as opposed to killed in action. For reference, that is nearly seven times more than were killed in the June Days Uprising of 1848, and nearly 4,000 more than were executed during the Reign of Terror, during the First French Revolution. About two times as many Parisians were taken prisoner in the aftermath of the Commune. But, to learn their fates, you'll have to tune in again in two weeks, when I will release an addendum which discusses French politics in the post-Commune era, the legacy of the Commune, and the plight of the Communards in exile. Until then, if you have any questions or concerns, they can be addressed to me via Twitter or Facebook. Links provided in the description. Alternatively, you can email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Until two weeks' time, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'd like to thank you once again for listening. I'm your host, Bill O'Connor, signing off. Fraternité de tous les ouvriers